If you turn with me to the uh, word, John chapter 4, it's also printed in your bulletins in smaller font today because it's a quite lengthy passage. It's a passage that's familiar to uh, many people who've grown up in the church, and um, it's a powerful passage in the book of John. Let me read John chapter 4, verses 4 to 30, and we're going to read the epilogue, verse 39 as well, um, just as a, to kind of cap off as an encouraging end note to this text. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. I'm going to skip over the verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And this is God's word. We're actually starting off a new series today. We're staying in the book of John, but instead of focusing on the previous series, which was what other people had been saying about Jesus and other people's conclusions about Jesus, we're now going to go into what Jesus himself, what he claims about himself. And today we're going to come across a Samaritan woman. She says, when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Now, why is it so important to know Jesus' claims? Why is it so important? We live in a time 
when it's acceptable to say that I'm looking for a spiritual reality. We live in a time when it's acceptable to say that I'm searching for spiritual truth, but it's equally unacceptable to say, I found it. It's equally unacceptable to say, I found spiritual reality. This is it. Look, look at this woman. Verse 29. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? In other words, I think I found spiritual reality. I think I found spiritual truth. Now, if Jesus' claims were not true, if they're false, you should dismiss them. You shouldn't listen to a thing he has to say. Because you'd be a fool because he's either crazy or he's a liar. I mean, why listen to him? But if his claims are true, if his claims are true, connecting with Jesus is the absolute key to discovering spiritual truth. The absolute key. It's the absolute key to finding spiritual renewal in our lives. So we have to listen to every word he has to say. We have to make sure, and this is an opportunity for all of us, again, to make sure that we know who Jesus really is when he says he is who he is. Three things we're going to learn today. And these are three things that you, incidentally, that you get if you find or discover spiritual reality. These are three things that you get if you genuinely are connecting with Jesus. You're going to get a new agenda. You're going to get a new center. You're going to get a new love. A new agenda, a new center, a new love. First, a new agenda. Jesus is traveling from Judea, which is the southern part of Israel, up to Galilee. The direct line to get there is to pass right through. If you put a ruler right from the two points, the midpoint right there is this town called Samaria. But oftentimes Jews, actually all times, Jews actually went around the town of Samaria because they didn't want to associate with these people. And so, but here it says, now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus intentionally goes through. So what do you see here? Right off the bat, the gospel gives us a new agenda. He travels through this town that everybody else avoids. And uh, that shows us what? That the gospel uh, transcends ethnic boundaries. Verse 7, it's a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans, part of the reason why they didn't associate with Samaritans was because the Samaritans were considered half-bloods. They were called half-breeds. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Babylonians came and they uh, routed Israel and they took the elite, the cultural elite. It would be today's graduate students, the, today's scientists, our teachers, our politicians, the smart people. They took them and they, would, they, they took them away captive. So they were exiled out of Israel, and the people who were left were kind of the lower class, the people who were uneducated, the people who were poor, the people who were really disfranchised from society. And these people then kind of let the other societies and other cultures slowly trickle into Israel. And it, this is, it was like this for hundreds of years, so you saw the intermixing. So not seeing that uh, the Jews who were purebloods, they didn't want to mix in with this community. Now that Israel was restored in some ways, and so they saw them as impure. They saw them as half-bloods. Um, the gospel transcends cultural divides. Jesus was sitting down by the well, verse 6. Only rabbis who taught sat. And you would never, in, all of it, in the Old Testament, you would never see a rabbi teaching a woman. And yet here's this Samaritan woman coming. Jesus is sitting down and teaching her about living water. The gospel transcends gender boundaries. The gospel transcends social boundaries. And in verse 9, these Jews who did not associate with Samaritans, uh, why didn't they associate with them? Because they had these differences in religion. Today, wars are fought over religious differences. 
the gospel transcends religious boundaries. Verse 18, the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. The gospel transcends moral boundaries. The gospel transcends ethnic, cultural, gender, social, political, religious, moral boundaries, all of our societal norms, all of our expectations. For instance, the religious, the religious say it's the adulterers that are out. Only the moral can come in. Jesus says there's no ethnic boundary. There's no cultural divide. There's no gender divide. There's no religious divide even. There's no social divide. There's no moral divide that I will not cross. I am the bridge. I will not cross to come to meet with you. There's no boundary I wouldn't cross to find you. It says he had to go through Samaria. The religious say the immoral are out. Only the moral are in. Jesus says the immoral can still be in. The immoral can still be in through me. Only through me. On one hand, Christianity is the most exclusive faith, the most exclusive faith that ever existed. Jesus says no one can come to the Father except through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. But on the other hand, the gospel is the most inclusive faith in all history. Why? Because it's not dependent on your social class. It's not dependent on your gender. It's not dependent on your economic class. It's not dependent on your educational class. It's not dependent on what you have or what you don't have, who you are, where you've been. Anybody can come in. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. You just need to admit. That's the only requirement. You just need to come to Jesus and say, I need, I'm wanting, I lack this, I have thirst. This woman, she admits her thirst. She admits thirst. And uh, how does the gospel then give you a new agenda? It gives you a new center. Jesus gives you a new center. So that's the second point. The entire dialogue revolves around three things, a well, water, and thirst, right? Well, water, and thirst. What does he mean? Jesus is traveling up to Galilee, and he's going out of uh, his way, at least the normal path of the Jews, and he's traveling through this town of Samaria. And um, if you turn with me to verse 7, let's kind of walk through this conversation again a little bit. Verse 7, Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? He encounters this woman. The Samaritan woman responds, verse 9, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews and Samaritans, they didn't associate with each other, right? Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman says, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In verses 7 to 14, Jesus is tying physical thirst, this concept of physical thirst, to a spiritual longing, a spiritual thirst. He, he takes, uh, he's, in other words, what he's saying is, just like the body needs water, just like the body physically needs water to live, otherwise it'll fall apart, it'll corrode, it'll, wa- it'll be washed away, it'll be parched up, it'll just dry up and corrode. Your soul, your soul is desperately in need of something. And unless you have it, it will create this longing, this thirst inwardly, that if you don't fulfill it, you will dry up, 
you will just be wiped away, wiped off the earth. The Bible says if God is not the center of your soul and you place any other belief, other relationship, your beauty, your wealth, material possessions, you're thirsting. And your soul's going to corrode until you just die at last. In verses 15 to 18 now, Jesus takes this concept of spiritual thirsting and he ties it to the woman's deep desires. The woman says, sir, right? Sir, give me this water, verse 15, so that I won't get thirsty. So I won't have to come here, keep coming here to draw water. Jesus says, verse 16, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. He's tying now this concept of spiritual thirst to this woman's deep desires. He's getting in. He's tying it to worship. What is worship? It's that thing that you functionally place your whole self into. That's worship. It's that thing that you place your entire sense of worth into. Something that you want so badly that you'd be willing to do anything to get it. Something that you'd be willing to give up everything that you have for it. Without, you don't, without any sense of the cost, the woman wants this water. He's saying, I need this water. Jesus says, I want you to go call your husband. Why does he do that? What's he doing? C.S. Lewis says that the thing, the only way that you can remove an idol in your life is to replace it with something that is greater. The only way that you can get rid of the image of something beautiful in your life is to replace it with something even more beautiful. The only way that you can replace one worship in your life is to replace it with something that is true or something that is better. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you want this living water? You have to replace it. You have to replace what you're currently worshiping, what you're currently using to quench your sense of thirst, with something greater. He's addressing her worship, what she's thirsting after. Men, what she's thirsting after? Love. What she's thirsting after? It's, it's relationships. And it's, it's a sense of worth found in just being deeply loved. She's seeking an everlasting love. Now, this is a problem. This is a problem for her, and it's going to be a problem for us. It's been a problem for all of us. This is the part where you say, oh, boy, here's where he says, Donnie's going to tell me that I have to give up sleeping with my husband. Donnie's going to t- this is where Donnie says, I have to give up uh, my addictions. The main reason why people avoid Jesus' claims is because fe- they fear that believing in it is going to diminish their potential. It's going to diminish their joy. It's going to diminish their options. When really, Jesus is the source of your potential. He's supposed to be the source of your options. He's supposed to be the source of your joy. Why does Jesus challenge this? Why does Jesus challenge this woman? He's not challenging us just to give up being bad. You know, he's challenging even giving up why we're oftentimes trying to be good as well. Verses 15 to 18, the woman says, give me this water. She's driven by her desires. Her desires are unbridled. Five men. The sixth one, the sixth man that she's living with right now is not even her husband. And um, it helps, you know, she's, she wants this water to help her to continue pursuing, trying to quench that internal thirst that she has. If I can get this, I can avoid the shame of all the other women around me who keep talking about me, all the gossip that happens by the well. I can avoid the trail, the path, the journey to get this water. It's arduous, it's long, it's hard. People are walking with me, they're constantly chatting about me. She can avoid all those things without God and still get what she wants to quench her thirst. Verses 19 to 24, though, upon Jesus calling on her and saying, go call your husband and come back, now she's caught. 
she transitions this concept, this conversation from wanting the water to fulfill her personal needs to religion. Let's talk about worship. You Jews say we should worship here. We believe we're supposed to worship here. All of a sudden, she goes from seeking and pursuing her desires to now talks about religion, theology. Where do you worship? How do you worship? And, and Jesus, um, this, this actually, this passage demonstrates the two ways that we deal with our thirst. On one hand, the first one is verses 15 to 18. It shows a natural way that we all pursue our desires. We pursue our thirsts. We give into the things that we think are going to make us whole, that are going to make us complete. That's called irreligiosity because we do it without God at the center. Why does Jesus challenge it? He says, go call your husband. Tell him to come here. It's painful for us. Why does he sometimes force us to see exactly who we are? It's because he knows us. That if we don't do that, we're going to remain in thirst. You're going to jump from husband to husband. We all have spiritual husbands in our lives. Every one of us is pursuing something. And if that's the thing that we hold at the center of our hearts, then we're thirsting and we're thirsting and we're thirsting. Even if you get it, even if you get it, number one, it's going to be temporary. And we've all experienced the loss, the feeling of loss there. And even if you get it, then it's not going to satisfy you. You're going to move on to something else. You ever see You've Got Mail? You've Got Mail, Tom Hanks, his character, is, is having a conversation with his father. And his father's been married multiple times. And now he's now experiencing his latest divorce. And it's a commonplace thing for him. He's like, oh, we're getting divorced. She's moving on. And he says, well, what are you going to do now, Dad? And he says, well, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to go find my next wife. This, this passage shows us that we're not very different. We all have thirst in our lives, and we're all pursuing it. We're all, and when that thing, this, the moment that that thing that we pursue either dissatisfies us or disappoints us, or then we're going to be longing. It leaves us in a state of longing, and we're just going to continue to pursue. Again, Jesus says you're constantly going to thirst. He knows that if you don't address the deepest thing that is at the center of your heart, you're going to continue to thirst. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. It's declarative. All other women drew well from this well, drew water from this well. This woman's trying to avoid those women. That's why she goes at the sixth hour. It's noon. When the sun is at its highest, it's the hottest part of the day. She goes here at this time so that she can avoid the talk. She knows not many people are going to be on that road to getting this water from the well, walk that long journey. Back then, the irrigation paths weren't very, very good, so you'd literally have to get up early in the morning and make that trek and take these big jugs of water to fill uh, from the well. She, was want- she wanted to avoid these people, avoid the gossip, so she walks alone. Physically needing the water, her soul thirsting for this love that is immoral. The Bible says we pursue this like crazy. We're going to go to great, great lengths. We're going to manage that thirst by somehow figuring out clever schemes to make sure that we get what we want. The moment that we're called on it, that's the second natural way that we deal with our thirsts, is we turn to religion. We try to be good. We try to be good. Flannery O'Connor says that the way to avoid Jesus best was to avoid sin. That if I can just be good, then I stay out of Jesus' hair. God isn't angry with me. In fact, he owes me for doing good. He owes me for being good. And so, so just like Flannery O'Connor, we have that mentality because the best way to avoid Jesus, the best way to avoid condemnation, the best way to avoid judgment from one another and from other people outside this body is to what? To be good. 
And so we pride ourselves in being good. We compare ourselves against other people and how bad they are or how not as skilled, not as talented, not as good as we are. And that makes us feel good. It's our way of saying, God, in in some subtle way, you owe me because of the good deeds that I do, the way that I labor for you. Look at the compassion of Jesus. Look at the patience of Jesus. He's sitting, and he's talking, and he's counseling this woman. And he's saying that there's going to come a time when we're not going to worship the Father here nor there. That time has come. Nothing, there's going to come a time when, when the worship that you experience is not going to be directed here. It's not going to be directed there. The worship that you're going to experience, the worship that you're going to practice is not going to be to this or to that. It's going to be real. And it's going to last. And it's going to be good. And it's going to be everlasting. Nothing can ever replace it. It's going to be true. And that time has come. He says it's going to be in spirit and truth. Nothing's going to be able to go in there and take it away. God is going to be at your center, and you're never going to thirst again. Now, next two verses, verses 25 to 26, absolutely remarkable. The woman, she's jiving. She understands. She says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to explain everything to me. Jesus responds and says, I who speak to you am he. Now, that's an incredible, incredible passage, incredible series of words. In other words, what he's saying is, the woman's saying, oh, you're talking about spiritual reality. I'm waiting. There's going to come a time. I'm waiting for that time. I know that all my suffering is going to come to an end. She has a hope, a living hope for a Messiah that will come, that will take all of her brokenness away. She knows it. She's waiting for the Messiah. How does Jesus respond? It's the same phrase when in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, Moses comes across a burning bush. And God says to him, Moses, I want you to go and free my people. For 400 years, I've watched them in their suffering. I want you to set them free. And and Moses says, he comes with a, a series of excuses. But the first excuse he gives is, well, when they ask me, I mean, who am I? When they ask me, who sent me, what do I tell them? Jesus says, I mean, God says, I am sent you. You tell them, I am sent you. The phrase is, ego me. And that's the exact same phrase translated now in the Greek. That when, when, uh, when the Messiah called Christ, he's gonna, when he comes, he's going to explain everything to me. Jesus says, I am. It's an amazing passage. It stops her dead in her tracks. Why do we know that? Several verses later, disciples now come. They just bought their food. They're surprised because Jesus is sitting. This rabbi is teaching a woman, and not just a woman. It's a Samaritan woman. Not just a Samaritan woman. It's an adulterous woman. And they're just surprised, but nobody, they don't interrupt. What happens? Verse 28, then leaving her water jar. The very thing that represents her toil, the very thing that represents her sadness, her laboring, her guilt, she leaves it behind. The entire journey for the water, she leaves it behind. And she runs back into the town. She's got a new agenda. Before the agenda was to be, she knew that she wasn't pure, so she stayed away. She runs right back into the town. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Her agenda has changed. She's crossed the moral boundary. She's crossed back to the, the city boundary to go back into the very people who rejected her, who cast her out, and she says, come see this person. Could this be? I think I found spiritual reality. When Jesus says, I am, what is he saying? I am spiritual reality. 
I am the spiritual truth. I am the thirst that you've been craving all along. The reason why you're sleeping with other people, the reason why you're living a promiscuous life, you're doing it because you're looking for a bridegroom. You're looking for worth in a bridegroom. And I am that worth. I am the thirst. I am the quenching of the thirst. Why does she run back to the town? It's because she's found a new center. She's found freedom. Some of us here, over the course of our lives, over the course of our years, we're pursuing lots of thirst. Some of them are very, very subtle. Some of them are very, very visible. But why do we do that? We believe, we genuinely believe in our hearts. I mean, I, we're not going to go right out there in a minute, but in our hearts, we believe that if I just have this thing, my potential, my options, my life, my joy will increase. I mean, none of us are doing it because we think it's going to decrease. We're doing it because we believe it's going to increase. That's why we're comparing where we are with where other people are all the time. It's our thirst. That's our thirst, the way it's acting inside us, working itself, corroding our souls. Others of us, we've lived a good life. I am a a recovering Pharisee. I've been uh, a Pharisee most of my life. So when I compare myself with other people, it's very rarely, um, you know, about status or, you know, but I look at my grades, you know, how smart I am. I looked at how, uh, how good I lived my life versus how other people have lived their life, my peers usually. I live at, uh, the moral character. I look at my own moral character and I look at other people's moral character. And I, and, and the thing is, that also leads you to thirsting because you're never gonna be satisfied. You're, you're always going to be longing. You're always feeling this insecurity, this spiritual insecurity of, am I accepted? You know why? Because you're basing it on your own works. You're basing it on your own works, and you're saying, God, you owe me, but then you know deep inside that you have sin. You know, and you're afraid to share it. You're afraid to open up about it. You get defensive when people criticize you. We're recovering Pharisees. How's a recovering Pharisee? We're all seeking new husbands in our lives. See, Jesus says, I am your source of worth. I am the acceptance you're working, you're looking for. I am your lover. She's quenched. Her thirst is quenched. She's got a new source of worth. She's got a new center. And it drives her agenda. She runs right back into the town and crosses all those boundaries that she put up. How can we do this? You gotta find a new love. You gotta find and encounter the love that she says. You see, this entire passage, this woman has had five husbands. And the man that she's now with is no longer her husband, not even her husband. So she's actually losing the fight here. She's looking for her husband, but the person that she's sleeping with right now, the person that she's with is not even a, a husband. So she's downgrading her life. Six men, and her thirst is getting worse. What's the cure? In verse 6, the entire passage actually revolves around a well. Jesus is seated at a well. And the woman in verse 12 says, you know, are you greater than our father Jacob? This is Jacob's well. And it's, this is not a coincidental. It's not incidental. If you think about it, in the first book of the Bible where Jacob, the patriarch, uh, lived, uh, how did Jacob meet his wife at a well? Rachel was beautiful. Rachel was lovely in form, it said. The text says, Rachel was pure. She wasn't a half-blood. She was pure. She was a pure Jew. She was beautiful, and she was, she was morally pure. She was sexually pure. And so she was fit for Jacob. Jacob takes after his father, his father, Isaac, also in the book of Genesis. If you read uh, that 
passage, those chapters, uh, around 20, chapters 22 to about 26 in the book of Genesis. Isaac met his wife, how? At a well. Isaac met Rebekah at a well, and uh, Rebekah was lovely in form, beautiful. She was a pure blood. She was a pure Jew, a pure Hebrew. She was sexually, morally pure, fit for a man like Isaac, a patriarch. But this woman, Jesus, at a well, meets a Samaritan, half-blood, prostitute, morally, sexually impure, meets her at a well. This, this woman is accepted. She's impure. She's outcast. She's ethnically mixed. There's nothing about her that is desirable. And yet she's accepted. And she's known. It says, you ha- Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus is the greater Jacob. Jesus is the greater Isaac. Why? This is why he's the greater Jacob. This is why he's the greater Isaac. Because Jesus' gospel is the anti-fairy tale. All the fairy tales, whether you look at Snow White, Cinderella, The Little Mermaid, Sleeping Beauty, you look at all these other American fairy tales, they all point to a handsome prince deserving of a fair maiden who is absolutely fair morally. She's just absolutely beautiful, and she's deserving of a prince. But the gospel is the anti-fairy tale, and that's our hope. You know why? That's our living water. You know why? Because religion says you have to live up to pure standards. That's how you get in. That's how you get accepted. But the gospel, the gospel says it's the complete opposite of irreligion. It's the complete opposite of religion. Religion also says you've got to live up to a certain series of standards to be in. Religion also says you have to win. You have to be at your best. You have to be on top of your game. You have to be better than everybody else, whether it's being athletic or making money or finding a, finding a good spouse or you're out. You're going to be constantly left thirsting. The gospel is the complete opposite. It is not what's in between both. It is the complete opposite of both. It is a third way. Jesus on the cross says what? John chapter 19, verse 28. I am thirsty. The giver of living water heals us by becoming thirsty on the cross for impure, outcast. Outcast in every way. The reason why we can be acceptable before God is because Jesus says, I thirst. The reason why we, be, we can become in, whether we are impure, whether we are guilty of a number of grievous sins, it's because Jesus says, I've been cast off. On the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this, the source of my life, the source of my joy, the source of my options, the source of, of my potential, my greatest pursuit, my wealth, my greatest desire, my worship has rejected me. You know what that does? He's saying, you know, I've given my whole self to my worship without counting the cost. Actually, Jesus did count a cost. And I gave it gladly. I gave it freely. I gave it totally to my worship. And it cost me my life. I knew what it's going to cost me. It cost me my life, and I gave it. And now, not only physically am I thirsting, but cosmically I'm thirsting. I'm thirsting. Jesus experienced a cosmic, cosmic thirst so that we can experience living water. 
It proves, you know, we, we can spend our lives, Jesus proving, looking at Jesus, reflecting on Christ, and saying that I've proven to you that there's no boundary that I would not cross for you. There's no cultural, ethnic, moral, spiritual boundary that I would not cross for you. Because on the cross, what do you see? I've become the bridge. I've become the access point to God. I've become your lover. I've done whatever I could to traverse all grounds to find you, discover you, relentlessly pursuing after you. If some of you are suffering in whatever way right now, that's Jesus pursuing you, pursuing you, reaching for you, looking to get a hold of you. Some of you are convicted in your sinfulness, convicted in your guilt. That's Jesus pursuing you. He's saying you can be known. You can be acceptable. You can be a son. You know, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul never says you can be a son or daughter. Being a daughter meant nothing back then. He says you can be sons of God. In Christ, we're all sons. In Christ, we're all heirs. In Christ, we're all inheritors of the richness of the gospel of the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is how. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So that we, he becomes the adulterer. We've all committed adultery spiritually. He becomes the adulterer. Why? So that we can become married to God. That's amazing. That's the gospel. That's good news. When you experience the pain of failure, when you experience the pain of loss, because you've taken, something, you've taken some terrible roads in life, you've made some horrible decisions in life, Jesus says, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who's cast you out, no matter who's deemed you acceptable, I will go out of my way and relentlessly pursue after you. And I'm going to bring you back to myself. How can you be assured of this? How can you be assured of the acceptance, the ultimate acceptance that you need? You've got to look at Jesus. He was rejected so that you could be accepted. He was disowned as a son so that you could be called son. He was cast off so you can be brought in. That's the gospel. If you take that truth, what does that do for your sense of worth? Jesus was disgraced so that your worth could be assured. How can you be assured of community and access and intimacy with God? Jesus was denied. He was outcast. He became the Samaritan so you could become pure. That's the gospel. He said, I thirst. I've gone to the depths where no man could go, where no man would be willing to go. Why? So that you can be shown the love. You can be shown value. You can be shown worth. That's why we, if you turn your worship to anything else, it will hurt you. It will corrode your soul. It will destroy you. Some of us are experiencing that right now. Actually, and all of us in some way, shape, or form are experiencing that right now. But if you come to Christ and see that there's nothing that he wouldn't do Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's why we're seeking after these things, to be acceptable. Jesus says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I'm going to close with just a few anecdotes that were moving to me. I'm going to read these to you. Um, In the Chronicles of Narnia, that's the sixth book um, of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a silver chair. It's a great book. Uh, one of my favorite passages. You have the character Jill, one of the children. She's stranded in a forest, and she's alone, and she's thirsty because she's been running. 
And lo and behold, she uh, comes across a stream, a trickling river. And uh, there's a problem, though. There's a lion by the river. So she's, here she is, she's dying of thirst, but Aslan, you know, he, he's actually the representative figure of Christ in these books, is standing, is sitting by the river. And, you know, imagine if you're thirsty, you're dying of thirst, you come to a, you come to a river and you see this crystal clear flowing water, it's a stream, and, but there's a lion behold, you know, what are you gonna do? She wants to run away. She's afraid that she's gonna, the lion's gonna devour her. The lion speaks to her with a voice that is deeper, wilder, stronger than a human voice, a heavy golden voice. If you are thirsty, you may drink. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered, only by a look and a very low growl, right? And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious and, and rippling noise of the stream, meanwhile, it's just driving her nearly fanatic, frantic, it said. She's going crazy. Fine, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill? I make no promise said the lion. Now Jill was so thirsty that without noticing it, she had already come a step closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up boys and girls, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, which is what we all do. There is no other stream, said the lion. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. There's a story of a a prostitute who had wandered into a pastor's convention and uh, sitting in this pastor's convention, everybody's repulsed by her. She sits there and she's listening time after time, day after day, after several days. They have an open mic session where these pastors were allowed to come up and share what they've learned. This prostitute gets up, and to the horror of these pastors, she walks down the aisle and approaches the mic and says, Yesterday, I had a dream. And in my dream, I was clothed in white. And there was Jesus. And he walks over to me and he says, can I have this dance? And there's music playing in the background. And suddenly, I'm dancing with Jesus. And he reaches and he leans over into my ear. And he says, I just want you to know that I'm crazy about you. That's Jesus, our lover. Will you look to the cross and 
reach out to him because, and let go of all of our other husbands. We all have the same type of husbands. Will you let go? And listen to Jesus' gentle and gracious words. Him saying, I'm crazy about you. That's him as lover. That's the gospel. Let that melt your heart. Let it bring you into himself. Transform your life. That's the only good that you can do. Every other type of goodness apart from Christ is you saying that God owes you. Will you listen and let the words of Christ melt your heart? Let him offer you the only clear refresh. What does water do? It gives you life. It refreshes you. It cleanses you. It gives you energy. It gives you strength. It actually is a source of a lot of joy. So, so clear. It brings clarity to things, doesn't it? Will you drink of that water today as we head back and celebrate with our parents? Will you drink of this living water that Jesus offers at his cost by saying, I am thirsty for you. Let's pray.